Here, at the Tower of London, is one of Britain's biggest boasts. It's part of a suit of armour made in 1540 for King Henry VIII. But it's not the fine, gilded, decorative braiding that stands out. No, the part we're looking at is the extrusion between the royal legs. The giant codpiece, about four inches thick, it's a sack of lies. The codpiece was one of history's strangest fashion statements. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by my fellow Blue Badge guide, Anthony Robbins, known as Mr Londoner. And this podcast is part one of our investigation into men's fashion. We'll be getting to the bottom of trousers. Dipping our toes into shoemaking. Uncovering the hair-raising truth about wigs. So join us on this fun and fact-filled journey, investigating men's wear through the ages. It will be so informative. It'll have you in stitches. A thousand years ago in Britain, getting dressed was very straightforward. Everyone wore tunics. Two pieces of material sewn together. Basically, a sack with holes for your head, your arms and your legs. With a belt to hold it in place and maybe some leggings. A universal outfit, from prince to peasant. If you were poor, you had one tunic. And if you were rich, it was a question of, which sack shall I wear today? It wasn't the cut or style that indicated your status, but the quality of the material and colour of the garment. But during the 1300s, men's clothes changed. This was known as the first era of British fashion. A revolution kick-started in the 1330s by the invention of the button. The tunic could now open at the front and taper around a man's stomach, showing the shape of his body. Bad news for anyone hiding a paunch. But good news for the first corset makers. The clergy raged against the button and its unfastening of the road to vanity. One churchman complained, Tunics have grown so short you can see the outlines of men's bottoms. <laughs> Medieval writer Geoffrey Chaucer mocked the pious parson raging against men's fashions. This horribly immoderate scantiness of clothing. There are these short-cut coats or jackets that, for their brevity and with wicked intent, do not cover men's shameful members. Royalty also had a problem with the new fashions. If a commoner merchant was sporting them, then how could you tell the difference between a king and a shopkeeper? Just as fashion was born, so was the fashion police. Rules known as sumptuary laws were introduced. In 1337, only those with an annual income over £100 a year were permitted to wear fur. And working men were banned from wearing aristocratic long coats. Meanwhile, King Edward III's wardrobe included a green velvet outfit embroidered with pearls, a padded jacket covered in vermilion and decorated with parrots, and a scarlet mantle garnished with silk and gold. Fashions that, to the modern eye, are more King Elvis than King Edward. It's 1463, and medieval England has a problem. A terrible outbreak of valgus buns. Not a case of poison baked goods. No, these are literally the country's first fashion victims. Dapper lords are taken to strutting the streets in carrot-shaped shoes. Known as Krakows, or Poulain, as they were thought to have originated in Krakow, then the capital of Poland. A foot fashion made popular here in 1382 
when Eastern European Queen Anne of Bohemia married English King Richard II. Over the decades, the points grew and grew until they reached beyond five inches, and medieval shoemakers stuffed them with hair so that they'd stand proud. In 2021, Cambridge archaeologists excavated the skeletons of a group of upper-class young men to find that they were plagued by a high rate of vulgus buns. Bunions caused by the unwieldy pointy shoes. Many of them made here by the cobblers of Bow Lane or Cordwainer Street, once the home of London shoemakers. Cordwain is an old English word for fine leather. It's a corruption of Cordoba, the Spanish city once renowned for supple but strong waterproof leather. But there was trouble afoot for the Cordwainers and their ill-fitting pointy shoes. Which had grown so long that they had to be tied to the garters so the wearers didn't trip. In 1463, King Edward IV passed a law forbidding London cobblers to make shoes or boots with toes longer than two inches. Anybody caught wearing them was fined and the money sent to the king. And so the pointless fashion trend was stamped out and would not appear again until it was revived in the 1950s by Teddy Boys. If you asked a Tudor tailor for a pair of trousers, he would give you a blank look. The word trousers only entered the English language in the 1600s. And pants only referred to leggings worn by slapstick theatre characters. Possibly why today we say pants when something's useless. Tudor legs were covered by hose. Which today are only worn by women. Pantyhose. But your 16th century chap loved to show a bit of leg. There were panelled hose with strips of fabric known as pansied. Or lengths of fabric running from the waistband to the leg band. Known as pumpkin pants. Gents' tights came in all colours, often bright greens, reds and yellows. And at the top of the hose was the codpiece. Which originated as a little triangle of fabric at the top of the tights, tied up with strings. Cod comes from the Middle English word for bag or scrotum. Cod pieces were exaggeratedly large. Tudor lads would add padding. Or ask their tailors to shape them into bulging horns of plenty. They could even contain a pocket or be used as a pincushion. The codpiece climax were the ultimate cocky king, Henry VIII. The codpiece de la Résistance. Here at the Tower of London is Henry's jousting armour. And it's not the king's fighting lance that draws your attention. But a bulbous codpiece weighing more than two and a half pounds. According to curator and historian Lucy Worsley, women would stick pins in its velvet lining to help them get pregnant. King Henry was obsessed by his search for a male heir and the assertive masculinity of the metal ball sack is a perfect metaphor for his life. During Henry's reign, aristocrats brocaded, bejeweled, tasseled, tinseled and otherwise ornamented their codpieces until they became like walking Christmas trees. But when Henry's son Edward died after only six years as king... Queens Bloody Mary and Elizabeth I came to the throne. And men had to, as it were, withdraw. Queen Elizabeth said, I will have but one mistress here and no master. And the codpiece shrank as fast as it had once grown. In 1649, men's fashion was heading into dark times. 
with Charles I executed, Puritans ruled England. Like the monarchy, fashion was exiled. Clothes were practical, plain and sombre, matched with pious pudding bowl haircuts. Contrary to popular belief, Puritans did not wear black every day. Because the dye was expensive and it faded quickly. Black was just for formal occasions. Which is why Puritan portraits nearly always show them wearing black. But in 1660, with Cromwell gone, England turned its back on black. When the King of Bling, the top of the fops, Charles II, took the throne, fashion was restored. Out went the doublet, in came the satin coat. Bulbous puff sleeves, breeches below the knee, decorated with bows and trimmings. But the ultimate indicator of status was the peruke, because no man of any repute would be seen abroad without his wig. An everyday wig costs the equivalent of a week's pay. That's a big price to pay. So for the basic chap, a cheap horsehair wig. The more money you had, the fuller your periwig. If you were rich, you had the full shoulder-length curls made from human hair. Giving birth to the word we still use today to describe anyone important. A bigwig. Perukes were popular because they were practical. Head lice were everywhere and nitpicking was painful and time-consuming. And the nits lived in the wig, so gentlemen would send their dirty headpiece to a wig maker who would boil it to remove the lice. Foppish fashions grew more and more extravagant. The term macaroni was coined for young men who wore these full-blown peacocking styles. Given that name, as they adopted fashions they saw on their grand tour in Italy. The macaronis wore giant, tottering conical wigs, coat tails and striped breeches. Remembered in the song from the time of the American Revolution, Yankee Doodle stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. The late 1700s saw the final flicker of flamboyant male fashions. The macaronis were pasta their sell-by date. And men's fashion was about to change forever. At the start of the 1800s, there was a new fashion icon strutting around London. Known as the Dandy. The darling of the dandies was Beau Brummel. He was the absolute arbiter of fashion, turning gentlemen away from the bewigged and breeched foppish fripperies of the late 18th century. Dictating a look based on tailored dark coats, full-length trousers and a knotted cravat. He is credited with inventing the men's suit. Brummel rose from minor gentry to become the country's first celebrity. And the key to the success was his friendship with George, the Prince Regent. Brummel held court at the Gentlemen's Clubs of St James. His office was the seat in a bow window at White's Club, where he could be seen by anyone of rank. Brummel's acolytes would gather at his home in Chesterfield Street just to watch him get dressed. A process that took an incredible five hours as he tried out different shirts and cravats. He recommended that boots be polished with champagne. Brummel gambled his way through his inheritance and lived way beyond his income. But his prominent position in society allowed him a constant line of credit. Until a fateful day, in 1813, at a masquerade ball jointly hosted by Brummel and his friend, Lord Alvinley. The Prince Regent greeted Alvinley and then cut Brummel by staring at his face without speaking. Provoking Brummel's ill-considered remark to Alvinley. Who is your fat friend? The Prince Regent was notably overweight. 
Brummel had committed social suicide. Cast out by the prince, abandoned by his former friends and hounded by his creditors, he fled to France where he died in syphilitic poverty. From riches to rags. But here in St James's, there's a statue of Brummel in all his elegant pomp. And his legacy, the gentleman's suit, is still with us. There's one street that has defined the history of the gentleman's suit, London's Savile Row. There are 21 tailors here with over 250 master stitchers working away in shop basements, sewing the best suits money can buy. Quite a lot of money, as we'll come to later. The story of Savile Row menswear goes back 200 years. A gentleman would arrive in his carriage, step into his tailors and choose the cloth he wanted for his suit. The material was now bespoken for, giving us the word bespoke. A bespoke suit is 80% hand-stitched and 20% machined. A process that takes up to 12 weeks. Giving a gentleman time to interact with the coat maker and the trouser cutter, all under the gentle guidance of the master tailor. And if that's too much for a chap's wallet, there's made-to-measure, which is 80% stitched by machine, with the suit then fitted to the customer. The shop that bought bespoke tailoring to Savile Row is Henry Poole. They opened here in 1846, tailoring livery for the royal household. And today, they still make uniforms for Buckingham Palace. Poole is credited with inventing the men's dinner jacket. In 1865, Bertie, the Prince of Wales, requested something less formal than white tie and tails for country house dinners. They removed the coattails and the jacket, or tuxedo, was born. There is a long-standing tradition of fathers taking their sons to tailors for their first suit. Winston Churchill was introduced to Henry Poole by his father in 1903. There's an iconic photo of Churchill wearing his Henry Poole grey chalk-striped suit and holding a Thompson submachine gun. And two Charleses, Dickens and de Gaulle, were tailored at Henry Poole, along with six British Prime Ministers. In the early 1900s, Dutch master tailor Frederick Scholt set up at number seven, Savile Row. The row was outraged. The Dutchman rejected the military-style tailoring the street stitchers were famous for. Instead, he pioneered the English drape or the London cut. He cut jackets with narrow, high armholes, full sleeves, natural shoulder lines, a broad chest and the distinctive vertical drape that gave the style its name. Schultz's reputation grew when he started tailoring for the future king, Edward, Prince of Wales. The prince stood just five foot five, and the Dutchman tailored his jacket waist unusually high to elongate the royal legs. The prince's fashion choices resembled his life, always defying the rules. He insisted on having cuffs on his trousers, enraging his father, George V. He wore patterned shirts with striped ties, creating a new trend. His left trouser pocket was cut wider to accommodate his cigarette case. The prince's pants were fitted with an elastic waist as he disliked suspenders and had modern zips instead of button flies. The prince owned at least 100 pairs of shoes and 55 suits. Edward's 325-day reign as king ended when he abdicated in 1936 to marry twice-divorced Wallace Simpson. Exiled in France as the Duke of Windsor, he still had his suit sent from Savile Row. The prince said, I was a leader of fashion, 
with the clothiers as my showmen and the world as my audience. He gave us the Windsor Knot, the Prince of Wales check and plus fours. In 1906, Pear Anderson, who trained as apprentice to the Prince's tailor, Schult, opened up one of Savile Row's best-regarded suit makers. Anderson and Shepard continued the relaxed, drape-cut style, taking it to Hollywood. Making suits for Charlie Chaplin, Fred Astaire and Cary Grant. They tailor many of the current generation of actors, including Rafe Fiennes and Liam Neeson. Anderson and Shepard's motto is a suit shouldn't wear the man, the man should wear the suit. And the moment a man is overdressed, he is badly dressed. The 1960s were a shock to the buttoned-up traditionalists of Savile Row. Primary colours, big bottom trousers and wide boy lapels were sacrilege to centuries of sober suit traditions. The man who put the hippie in Savile Row was Tommy Nutter. Nutter the Cutter blended old-world sewing skills with the peacock revolution of the 60s, tailoring for the leading dandies of swinging London. His clients included Mick Jagger and Elton John. Nutter was proud that he dressed three out of the Fab Four for the 1969 cover of the Beatles album Abbey Road. Only missing out on George Harrison, who wore denims. Nutter mentored a generation of tailors who continued his flamboyant style. He's best known being Oswald Boateng. In 1995, age 27, Boateng was the youngest and first black tailor to open a store on Savile Row. The cool Britannia tailor for politicians and for media stars. Boateng is known for his trademark imperial purple and bright colours. Famous clients including actors Jamie Foxx and Leonardo DiCaprio. Celebrities who can afford the £5,000 starting price for a bespoke Boateng suit. The only thing that's a snip are the scissors. But if you can't afford the bespoke, you can wear a piece of Savile Row, just like Anthony. My Oswald Boateng tie. Like Boateng... Several current fashion designers learnt their skill as apprentices on Savile Row. East End boy and self-proclaimed stitch bitch Alexander McQueen was an apprentice at Anderson and Shepherd. He then crossed the street to work at another Savile Row tailor, Geeves and Hawks, where he'd turn up for work in Levi's and Doc Martins, and where, according to legend, he sewed a vulgar insult into a suit made for Prince Charles. Designer Stella McCartney, apprentice with Tommy Nutter Taylor. Edward Sexton. Sexton sewed the suit that her father, Paul McCartney, wore on the Abbey Road cover. The Beatles played their last ever live gig, a very loud rooftop concert from number three Savile Row within earshot of every tailor working on the street. Savile Row Tailors, Geeves and Hawks is the oldest working bespoke tailoring company in the world. Mr Geeves and Mr Hawkes started working as tailors over 250 years ago. Thomas Hawkes came to London in 1760, working as a delivery boy for a velvet cap maker. But when his boss drank himself to death, Hawkes set up on his own as a hatter and tailor. His top client was King George III, who ordered thousands of uniforms for the British Army. Geeves was a naval tailor. He cut the uniform that Admiral Nelson was wearing when he was shot at the Battle of Trafalgar. An outfit that can still be seen today at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Complete with bullet holes. Geeves made uniforms for the original Captain Bly. 
and a century later made the costume for actor Charles Lawton playing Bly in the film Mutiny on the Bounty. In 1988, Michael Jackson drove past Geeves and Hawks and spotted a uniform in the window. Jackson wanted to wear the outfit at Wembley Stadium for the world tour of his album Bad. If this had been a military uniform, they couldn't have given it to him because it's illegal to impersonate the military. Fortunately, it was a Privy Council uniform designed to be worn by an advisor to the Queen. So they added some epaulets requested by the pop star and the jacket went on the world tour. Geese and Hawks has multiple royal warrants. These are awarded to companies who regularly supply goods or services to the Queen, the Prince of Wales or their households. Marked with a plaque that's usually placed outside the building. In 1809, Thomas Hawkes received his first royal warrant from George III. Today, they have two current royal warrants as the livery maker for the Queen and tailor for the Prince of Wales. In the days when royals led fashions, this would have meant prestige and lots of business. Today, Geeves Hawkes is best known for making suits for footballer David Beckham and racing driver Jensen Button. In 2007, Robert Geeves the fifth and last generation of the family to serve Geeves and Hawks, died. Ending an association with suit making that goes back nearly 300 years. But whatever the future of the suit, its story will continue here at Savile Row. This British Guild of Tourist Guides podcast was written by Mark Zakian and co-hosted with Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr Londoner. The music was by Scott Buckley, Laboria Conti and Dar Golan. For tours and information about Blue Badge Guides, visit britainsbestguides.org. Please subscribe to the channel to hear part two of our Men's Fashion Podcast. <laughs>